This is Philosophy Takes on the News. Hello and welcome to Philosophy Takes on the News. I'm Simon Kirchin, a philosopher based at the University of Kent. We're recording on the morning of Friday the 30th of September 2022. This is the week that saw markets react badly, that's an understatement, to the latest fiscal event from UK Chancellor Kwasi Kwarteng. Russia's invasion of Ukraine continued with highly controversial referenda being held within some territories and Italy has a new government and prime minister. So this week, we're going to think about those Italian elections, and we're also going to think about chess. We'll also see what else we get onto, as always. In fact, the news seems to be coming at us all the time, so disorienting and dizzying in its badness. Which brings me to this week's guests. Joining me today, we have Michael Hauskeller, Professor of Philosophy and Head of Department at the University of Liverpool. Hi, Michael. Good morning, Simon. And Vittorio Bufaki, who's Senior Lecturer in Philosophy at University College Cork. Hi, Vittorio. Hi, Simon. Hi, everyone. Uh, Great to have the two of you with us. Okay, so let's get to our first item. Very recently, Italy held a national election and it produced a result that sent shockwaves across Europe, although it's also come on the back of other results, such as the recent elections in Sweden. Um, Vittorio, do you want to fill us in on what's happened in Italy? And then we can tease out the philosophical issues and consequences. Yes. So what has happened is terrifying. And it really needs to be said that it's terrifying. Uh, the, the foreign media is really not appreciating um, how serious this is. I mean, there have been articles even this morning in, in the Financial Times referring to this government as a conservative government. It's not. It absolutely is not. This is not a centre-right coalition. It's a right-wing coalition, and it's led by an extreme right-wing party. So those of us who, who lived in the UK in the 1970s and 1980s, you know, we, will rem- you know, we remember the National Front. You know, this is far-right, ultra-nationalist movement um, run by skinheads, uh, prone to violence against immigrants, um, using politics as an excuse to get into fights. That is what Meloni's Brothers of Italy party is. This is like having the National Front in government and the leader of a National Front party as prime minister. I mean, it's it's as serious as that. Um, and this is going to have political repercussions across Europe because it's going to galvanize and legitimize parties like Vox um, in Spain. And these are all parties that they've come on as protest parties, as anti-establishment. But now they're seeing that it's possible to be in government. And within the EU, um, one thing is having Hungary as a sort of far-right government. And another thing is to have Italy, you know, just in the size of the economy, um, and if this is going to have an impact on Spain and France, we could be looking at a very, very different um, EU. And without rubbing it in, for those of us who still live in the EU, actually, that's that's quite <laughs> quite concerning. Um, so, so there are all sorts of political issues. 
But I think it's interesting to reflect on the philosophy of this and, and really what philosophy can, can make of this. So, you know, if we go back to, to Socrates, so he said, um, evil is born of ignorance. And I think there is, there is perhaps a, a tendency to always analyze things like this in terms of, okay, this is just people don't realize what they're doing. If only they knew they would not have voted for a fascist party. They would not have voted for Maloney. Uh, and you could argue that maybe this ignorance is also part of what the foreign press um, is printing at the moment. I actually, I'm, I'm tempted to think that I, this is not the right way to think about it. Um, that actually it, it's, it, it's, it's worse than that. This isn't ignorance. Actually, people knew what they were doing. And it's because they knew about Meloni and her neo-fascism um, that they voted for her. And people really don't really care. And this, <clears throat> in terms of ethics, is, is really disconcerting because it kind of makes you think that morality is insignificant here. Does moral reasoning change people? I mean, we spend so much time teaching ethics and reading books about ethics does it really make a difference? Does education make people better? Um, you know, it, Italy is a highly educated country. It's a country where actually philosophy is taught in high school and has been for, for decades. And it, right now, obviously, obviously, I'm, I'm still under shock and I'm, um, um, I'm, I'm very pessimistic. But... Um, what what is the point of ethics at this point? <laughs> because it's, I mean, um, you know, John Rawls in his theory of justice, the whole thing is really premised on people having a sense of justice. You know what? I think people have a sense of indifference. Uh, Judith Sklar talks as indifference as really uh, the essence of a passive injustice, and this is this is what. What really has come up, as far as I'm concerned, from from this um, from this election, the foreign press is talking about Meloni as um, as, as a new political figure. Uh, she's not. She's been in politics since since she was 15 years old. I've been following her for many many years. She was the leader of this youth group of of sort of equivalent of of the National Front who went around beating people up because of the color of their skin. People know this, and they don't care. And so moral motivations, moral reasoning, where is it? Right, so that's the ethics. And very, then quickly, um, there's an element of epistemology here. Um, so, you know, with our... Undergraduate students, we you know we always start with Plato's tripartite definition, knowledge as justified true belief. I'm starting to think that people don't base beliefs on evidence. Evidence plays absolutely no role in this. Something like William James and the will to believe is so much stronger here. And people will believe whatever they want to believe. Because this is not a conservative party. This is not just an economic policy. This is a party that is, is gaining votes because they have views about 
God, family, and fatherland. You know, these are these are um, the mottos of Mussolini, and people. And so, how do we build? How do we construct our moral and political beliefs? Justified true belief I, doesn't doesn't do it for me at the moment. A lot more to be said. Um, any thoughts? Michael. Uh, thanks, Victor. I've got loads of thoughts. Michael, I'll hand over to you first and I'll, I'll come in. Yeah, sure. Uh, I mean, I, I share your concern about these developments, but I'm surprised that you seem to be surprised about this because uh, it's not anything new. I mean, it started, the whole thing started at least with Brexit. Uh, and then Trump in America, and we have Viktor Orban, uh, we have Poland, Sweden recently, now Italy, right-wing, extreme right-wing um, politicians are on the rise everywhere. Um, and but, but you're right, it's not because people are ignorant about what is being proposed, about their policies. It's they want this. They want this kind of shit. Is going on anti-immigration, taking back control, nationalism, some sort of identity, perhaps some sort of meaning that is lacking in their lives, and that they think they can um, achieve through being involved in this kind of disruptive movement. Um, William James, you mentioned William James. He he wrote an essay in. 1910, I think, called The Moral Equivalent of War, in which he argued that um, we are not really deep down peace-loving creatures. We are creatures that need war, or at least in peacetimes, an equivalent of war, which explains the, the um, popularity of sports competitions, I suppose, but that might not be enough. And he also he has a line in that essay, he says something like, the horror makes the thrill. So it is a mistake to think that people vote for the party that they think will make their lives better. Um, Nietzsche once said, um, man doesn't want to be happy, only the Englishman does. Um, he was right about the first part. Um, it's not happiness or well-being that primarily we strive for. I think he was wrong about Englishmen because they don't do this either. I guess the, the point I'm trying to make is that the, the chaos, the disruption, um, the horror, that is the very point of it. It's not just something that... Uh, oh, we didn't realize that that might happen. It's precisely what is supposed to happen. It's not about the economy. It's about something else. I mean, I'm, I'm struggling to understand it. I'm struggling to understand what exactly is going on. But I'm convinced it is not rational in the sense of um, people vote because they think it's in their own best interest that the policies that are being proposed are being executed. There's something else that they want. And that, that is, 
I don't know whether it's philosophically interesting, but it's certainly psychologically interesting who we are, what kind of people we are, and and uh, where it becomes philosoph- philosophically interesting is perhaps what that means for our conception of democracy. For instance, um, in, in in the U.S. at the moment, um, there's a lot of discussion about um, protecting democracy from people like Trump, right? Um, but it's not really about protecting democracy because, as we see, many of those extreme right-wing governments, um, they are democratically elected. And it's just an accidental that in America, Trump has never won the popular vote. It's frequently emphasized he never won the popular vote. But he could have won the popular vote. He can win the popular vote perhaps next time. And so it's not really about protecting democracy. The will of the people, I think, is very much overrated. What needs needs protecting is what, what Bergson and later uh, Karl Popper called the open society, as opposed to a closed society, an intolerant society, a society that that is averse to, to new influences, that that hates immigrants and and all and and uh, free speech and all this kind of shit, right? So it's the open society that we need to protect, and democracy is a very um, imperfect means of doing so. Great, good thoughts from both of you. Shall I have a go, Vittorio, and try oh, to Simon. try to help you as well? So, you know, I, I mean, I. I, I clearly uh, share your concern indeed michael's as well i mean not just in italy in the news that we've got where i mean i think you're right there's something very interesting about italy and i think about sweden as well where we've got these openly kind of very right-wing parties which have clear um, roots in fascism neo-nazism and, and so on and the people have voted for them and i think they have I mean, clearly, some some voters will vote and be indifferent, but but some people have voted with their eyes open, and I think there is. I mean, something that Mike was saying towards the end, and and bringing in a lot of other political examples, where we've got a kind of closing of the mind, and it's very much kind of nationalistic. It's Italy for the Italians, right? And we know what we mean, what they mean by Italians here, as you've indicated, right? There are certain people who fit into the mold of what Italians mean. So people on the Dolmio jar, right? Um, and people who aren't Italians, even though, of course, they are, you know, citizens of Italy. Uh, and the same can be repeated across, you know, much of the European continent. And similar in, in America, right? So, you know, it's pretty clear. It's pretty clear who Trump supporters are and who he identifies as his, as his supporters. And you can say this about, you know, other countries as well. Same in Brazil. And so why is this happening, right? So... I mean, I was talking to someone about this the other day. I mean, this might be a bit of a leap, but I'll bring it back. So I'm interested in what's been happening over the last 30, 40 years since since the fall of the of the of the Berlin Wall, and then we had the end of the Cold War, and we had this kind of quite remarkable now <laughs> peaceable situation, right? The peace dividend and all that. And we kind of saw the rise, you know, with, you know, politicians of different stripes, but particularly people think about Clinton and Blair around kind of, you know, globalization that increased for all sorts of political and economic reasons. We saw people banging on about meritocracy. And I'm struck by this word meritocracy, right? 
because uh, we, we might know, but perhaps some of our listeners don't. So meritocracy um, came to prominence as a word, as a term in the mid 20th century. And it was, I think it was coined, certainly made popular by social and political thinker Michael Young who ironically his son is Toby Young, he's quite right-wing, a <laughs> UK commentator. But Michael Young was quite, you know, what would describe him as kind of centre-left, I suppose. And people always bang on about how good a, a thing meritocracy is, right? So, you know, people who are the best at whatever it is, they're the ones who rise and, and uh, you know, fill positions of influence and power, and they get more resources, and they get bigger role in society. I mean, in fact, Michael Young coined perhaps and popularized the term meritocracy is a kind of dystopian version of the future because it's all right for the people who win in a meritocracy but in fact there's going to be people who lose and the people who lose if everyone's banging on about meritocracy they're going to think well perhaps i don't merit it perhaps i'm no good and and actually i think it's the seeds of that thought that lie behind what happened with trump and what happened with brexit let's take those two examples right where people who were left behind people in various communities thinking about the UK who, you know, for many years just weren't, they, they thought and they were told by certain sections of the media in this country that they that they don't deserve it and they're not getting good results. And hey, but, you know, if you turn to other people, they might be able to, to give you those results. People who look a bit like you, people who think like you. And I think that there's something around that where we've had this big sweep across parts of the world where a lot of it's based on globalization but also meritocracy and we're just seeing a big kickback in a in a kind of interesting era where people are kind of closing their minds I mean, as michael emphasized and they're kind of closing their borders almost and so you've got very much an emphasis on as you said family right and and i think italy for the italians certain views about what the country should be like and there will be certain interesting relations between Italy and the EU because they realise that the EU is going to give them some money, but they're not going to put a lot back in, certainly not political energy, into an EU project and seeing that they have an interest in working with other people for the benefit of other people. They're only going to be benefiting you know, their own country and benefiting particular sections of their country. So it's this closing of this mind and it's a kickback, I think, against meritocracy, which Michael Young warned us about in that dystopian book, uh, back in the mid twentieth century, so that's 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 my thoughts about about that. I don't know what you think, Victoria. Yeah, no, no, that's really interesting. The, the link with meritocracy, uh, I didn't think of it, but but I think that really makes sense. Um, absolutely. Um, let me go back to something that Michael said um, very quickly. Uh, so, Michael, you were saying, you know, people, you know, this vote is not that people are thinking about their interest. There is something else. There's something else which is, you know, even even scarier. And and I kind of wonder whether, in a sense, that something else is is irrational. There is a sense of irrationality here because we think about your, you know, a very simplistic, utilitarian way of thinking, your self interest and your rational self interest. But I mean, if we you know, if we accept that irrationality is is so powerful, that really pulls the rug from under the feet of philosophy. Because I always think that good philosophy, it's good logic, which is based on rational arguments. And I feel powerless. And you know, I I, I agree that that's what that's why I find it so scary. Um, and you're right. I mean, it's always been there, um, and it's growing. But 
Meloni herself, I mean, she went from 4% to 26% in four years. I mean, that's that's a hell of a leap. And so what, you know, what should we read to make sense of this or to stop the rot? Um, to make sense of it, I, I think I have to go back to Carl Schmidt, um, which I don't want to. But maybe, maybe there is, maybe he's right. The logic of friend and enemy is so much more powerful than than any sense of justice um, a la Rawls. And the other person that I have gone back to, actually, um, is Cicero, um, that I've, I've been working on Cicero for a few years now. And Cicero, I think, is really interesting because... Um, he was defending the Roman Republic, which is the closest thing to Romans had to what we would identify with democracy. And the Roman Republic was there for 450 years. And it came to an end, and it was demolished by authoritarian populists. And we're finding ourselves, I think, getting close to that stage. And I think there is a problem that people think, oh, well, of course we live in a democracy and of course democracy will always be with us. But, you know, our Western democracy, it's only, what, 100 years old. Mm. Um, And if something that was around for 450 years could come to an end and be replaced by the emperors or a bunch of fascists, in a sense, you know, our democracy can also come to an end. And in terms of political theory... The way that we think about democracy, you know, I think so much of what when people write about democracy assumes that democracies will will win because they are better, morally speaking. And I, I'm thinking, no, I mean, I mean, this this could be an end of republic moment, um, which is why I think Cicero is is so important. And, you know, as, as Cicero said, uh, you know, things are bad. You know, they're about to get a lot worse. Um, and I think we we need to think in those terms to, to sort of to shake us out of our sense of uh, security. Just, just to clarify, Victoria, what I've said about it being irrational, it depends on, on what we mean by irrational. It's not irrational in the sense that uh, we think something... Uh, we want something to happen, uh, and we choose means that are completely uh, unsuitable for that to happen. Uh, this kind of irrationality, um, which is not. Um, so, for instance, you might say we hope that this would make the country better and our lives better. Um, and we don't see that this kind of measure is not going to do that or is unlikely to accomplish that. For instance, with Brexit, I'd say, okay, the left behind uh, think, okay, we need something, we need to do something. It's EU uh, regulations that keep us down and so on. We need to do something about this. But um, after that happened, and after the consequences, uh, the economic consequences of Brexit emerged and became more and more undeniable and more and more obvious, people changed track and said, it's not really the economy. It doesn't matter whether we suffer economically. It was never about the economy in the first place. It's about being in control. It's about sticking it to 
the elites in Brussels or whatever. Um, and in, in, in that sense, it's not irrational that we choose the wrong means for the ends we, we want to um, achieve. It's irrational in the sense that to hell with being reasonable, to hell with um, being nice to each other. Um, so what, what I said earlier, the, the, the striving for chaos, for chaos's sake, if that is un, if that is irrational, yes, it is irrational, but it's still what is being wanted, you know, shaking things up, disruption, um, and then we can see that that is happening everywhere. Getting tired of being nice, getting tired of peace, and also perhaps prosperity. I mean, the situation written now. Is, is a bit different because now we're really in deep shit economically. Sorry, pardon my language. Um, so uh, people might reverse their judgment. They're not so Tory friendly anymore when they can't heat their, um, their house and don't know how to pay their mortgage. But as long as they're relatively okay, they like the disruption. They like this kind of policies that sticks it to someone. I mean, the globalized world is very confusing for many, I suppose. It's different to know who you are and what you're supposed to do, what your place in the world is. Um, and populist right-wing politicians, they serve this desire for simplicity. Take Bolsonaro in, in Brazil, God, fatherland, and family, right? In Italy, I'm sure you have similar slogans, God, fatherland, family. It's very simple, but you have things you can hold on to. God, fatherland, family. These are, clear, well, I wouldn't say clear values, but they, they at least have the, give the impression of being clear, straightforward values or things to hold on to. Um, and in an open liberal society, that is not the case. You don't know where to turn to. You have to make up your own mind and in a way find your own values as well. So perhaps that desire is also very strong there and explains to an extent um, this kind of decision-making for right-wing populist parties. Simon, yes, I, I, I want to bring you in um, because of your expertise in ethics. Um, because, yes, you know, I mentioned reading Carl Schmitt and Cicero. I think, you know, people should reread your book on ethics. Now, on the basis of what Michael said, is it the issue here that people are grasping for um, an objective morality? So God and family, so things that are very sort of solid? Or are we seeing the consequences of Mackey's inventing right and wrong? And people are inventing, you know, well, this is, you know, my subjective view of morality. You know, I, I actually have a lot of time for Mackey, but, you know, taken to an extreme, it's kind of undermining certain views about right and wrong and anything goes. 
what, what does metaethics make of this? So I don't know about metaethics, at least narrowly. Um, I mean, I certainly think that what we've got, I mean, the, 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 a different term that I reach for, and it kind of, um, I don't know whether it was you or Michael who mentioned it around evidence. So there's a lot of swirl here around, you know, evidence, fact-free, post-truth, all of those ideas, which are kind of subtly different. And of course, you've written a little bit about this, Vittorio, in your excellent book about COVID. I know that. Um, if you're advertising my book, I may as well advertise yours. But my book is Metaethics 2012, Pargrave Macmillan, an excellent read. So that that that's sort of so I think that there is a kind of a localization here, right? Which actually taps into not what not just what you were saying at the start, but also what Michael was just saying, where people want simple answers. But the simple answers are what's right for my community? What makes sense here, right? I don't care what's going on 250 miles away, right? The, the, the Italian government might band with the Hungarians and the Poles and perhaps what's going on in Sweden to kind of instrumentally get what, get what they want out of the EU. But they could, they'll kind of, and they might network, but really what they care about is what the truth is for certain sorts of Italians, right? And so there'll be, there'll be these very simple slogans, such as Michael was just giving about God, Father, family, these kind of, yes, they have the appearance of kind of these universal values, but really what they mean is our interpretation of the things that really matter to us locally here, right? And, you know, this is what makes sense. This is my truth. I don't want to hear yours, right? I think that's that's the slogan. And that is, I mean, it comes back to what Michael was saying about this closing of the mind, right? So I think this era of countries working together and realizing and seeing, not in some kind of rational way, but just feeling it in their stomach that we need to work together to achieve a better world, right? I think that's 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 going because what happened in that situation, I'll come back to, to my comments from earlier on is that yes we achieved a better world but some people got a far better world than others and it felt like that and so then you're getting a backlash from all those people who feel as if they've missed out and they want they and they're, they're sticking it to the ban as michael said but it's sorry to interrupt time it's not just those who are left behind or have reason uh-huh. to be left behind who are into this kind of populism. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, yeah. By lots of people who have money and who have power and have yeah. influence, right? They enter this too. So, but but to answer um, Vittoria's question about is it objective values here or is it ra- rather a kind of Mackian anything goes kind of end of morality thing, I was wondering whether it could be both in a sense that um, those slogans, this very simplified slogans, suggest an adherence to two objective values, but it's only the semblance of objective values, only the words, and it doesn't really have much content. When you look at the individual policies or the actions of, of people who um, who throw those slogans into your face. And if you look at the pol- politicians we have these days, Trump or Boris Johnson, um, they're good examples because they don't have an ideology, right? They, they, they 
they say anything and think anything if they think it will keep them in power or it's what needs to be said or heard or whatever. There's no ideology, no conviction, no strong conviction behind it. Now, that might be different with um, Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng. They're very much into this neoliberalist um, mindset. But um, those flexibilists, those flexible politicians who don't have any strong convictions, they are the ones who can make best use of this situation where what is being needed or asked for are strong slogans that should suggest objective morality without any real commitment to any real content of those phrases. I'm, I'm even reluctant to call them concepts. They're not even concepts. They're just words. But it seems for many those words are enough right? <laughs> to, form, to form an identity, to create some semblance of, of a meaningful life, perhaps. Yeah, just one uh, quick thought from me, uh, Michael. I think what you said all the way through is very interesting, particularly at the start. You're right that, that I mean, of course, it's not just um, you know, people left behind. There are lots of people who actually are doing quite well. There's a few people who are doing very well, and they're kind of caught up with this as well. And so there's an interesting question, what have they got to gain? And I think it's just about control and influence, and perhaps they're, they're a bit bored and they just want to be kind of have a bit, bit of publicity and kind of manipulate either in front of camera or, or in the shadows. I mean, I'm thinking about some incredibly rich billionaires who are sometimes quite secretive in America, in parts of Europe, who just want to be very influential and just want to, I mean, is it greed? They just kind of want to get even more money. I mean, I just can't get myself into that mindset, but there's a very interesting Issue. And then I think, I mean, I'm watching some of the things Vittorio has been posting on on uh, Twitter and, and other places recently. You know, what happens if you're a journalist at somewhere like, let's call them out, the Daily Mail or the Daily Telegraph, writing rubbish? I mean, I mean, intellectual rubbish doesn't make sense. And yet, you know, they get they're not incredibly rich, but they're they're fairly well off. They've got a nice, a nice salary. If you've got a column in the Daily Telegraph regularly every day living in a nice house in London. Why are they spouting this rubbish? What's in it for them? Um, I, I mean, I just can't make sense. I mean, influence, right? I mean, it, it's it's kind of weird. Um, or maybe they're just nasty. Maybe, maybe they're just, perhaps I'm too nice and optimistic about human nature. Perhaps they're just nasty and stupid. <laughs> well, it's, it's the thing is, if people, you know, if they are nasty, I think philosophy, again, goes out of the window because mm. you have the mm. age. You know, we're powerless against the nasty for nasty's sake. Yeah, we shouldn't, no under, we shouldn't underestimate the human potential for nastiness. So. Yeah, yeah. Well, on that note, <laughs> let's draw <laughs> this to a, a close, this segment. Um, and we'll see you in the next part where we're going to be making our next move. <laughs> And welcome back. Uh, a quick advert in case you haven't heard. I also have another podcast series, Philosophy Gets Schooled, which is aimed at school students and teachers and, and any parents as well, if they want to listen. Uh, we talk through lots of philosophical topics on school curricula with a group of teachers in every episode. 
Uh, just this week, I've been recording some new episodes. Last night, I was talking about the ontological argument for the existence of God. We've also been talking about perceptual knowledge and natural law theory this week. Uh, please feel free to check it out. Philosophy Gets Schooled is available wherever you get your podcasts, such as this one that you are listening to right now. Okay, so let's think about chess, and we might get on to broader issues as well. So earlier this week, uh, Magnus Carlsen, uh, the world's leading uh, chess player, some people think he's the greatest chess player uh, who's ever played the game, um, wrote a very interesting letter uh, following a tournament uh, talking about cheating. Uh, Michael, do you want to introduce this for us, please? Yeah, thanks, Armin. Well, I suggested this. I know there are much bigger stories at the moment, but I thought it, there's something of philosophical interest here. So, as you said, the Norwegian chess grandmaster Magnus Carlsen accused another player, uh, Hans Niemann. Uh, Niemann is an American and still quite young, I think he's 19, of cheating at recent life tournaments. Earlier this month, Carlsen uh, withdrew from the Singfield Cup in St. Louis, uh, which was in early September, after losing to Niemann. Um, and initially, he didn't give an explanation why uh, why he withdrew, and there were speculations about this might be because he thought Niemann uh, was cheating, and later turned out that was exactly what Carson thought, but he didn't provide any evidence. It's unclear whether he had any evidence, um, except the fact that he lost uh, to a relatively young, relatively new and unknown player. And perhaps in addition to that, the, the fact that Niemann then also admitted uh, having cheated in the past twice uh, in online encounters, once when he was 12, once when he was 16. Uh, so it's the fact that he won and that he was I'm not sure whether he was caught, but that he admitted having cheated in the past. But Niemann was also adamant that he didn't cheat at this tournament um, and has never done so at life tournaments. And it's also unclear how he might have cheated. I mean, there were cases in the past where players uh, hit a phone somewhere on the on the body with which they connected to a chess playing app a computer and hidden earpieces and things like that. But again, there's no evidence that that was the case. And Niemann denied the allegations and offered to play naked in a box <laughs> to prove uh, that he could do it. Now, I have no idea, obviously, whether he did or did not cheat, and that's not really interesting. What, what is interesting for me is the notion of cheating that is being applied here and why that is thought to be such a deal. I, I was looking at the online discussions, comments from readers about this case, and one person said, so cheating makes its way into chess just like it has into baseball, football, and other sports. But it seems to me there's a difference here. I mean, what kind of cheating happens in, in football? Uh, it's mostly, I suppose, people who pretend that they have been fouled, so the so-called diving in order to win a penalty, so they are often seen as cheaters. 
um, or perhaps results are fixed in advance that might happen occasionally. I don't know. But that is very different from the kind of cheating that allegedly took place here. Um, an equivalent in football would be if a real player, a human player, would have been replaced by a robot who looked like a human player um, and has enormous superhuman football playing powers, skills, right? That kind of cheating, or perhaps the closest um, that in the real world cheating in football might come to the kind of cheating um, that we're talking about here is performance-enhancing drugs. You know, like, okay, it's not really the natural player, but the, the player has used something else which is external to the game, can we say that, that mm -hmm. helped. Now, the point I'm trying to make here is the alleged cheating is not a breaking of the rules of chess. So if you and I at a game of chess and I want to cheat you, I would probably try to distract you and then move a piece uh, from an un unfortunate position on the board to a different position or something like that, right? Which would be breaking the rules of chess. But here, this cheating is not breaking the rules of chess. It's breaking the rules of the tournament, which is a different thing because, because those rules, one should think, could easily be changed. If you change the rules of chess itself, it would be a different game. If you choose, if you change the rules of the tournament by allowing perhaps people consulting with a chess program, that would not change the game of chess. It would just introduce different rules, and those rules are more or less arbitrary. And there is no cheating if there is no rule, and the rule needs to be agreed upon. So the question for me is, why do we agree upon this particular rule, and why are people so keen on observing, on, on players observing this rule? So why is it so important, these external rules rather than internal rules that define that particular game as a game of chess? Okay, thanks, Michael. Good. Uh, Victoria, I've got some thoughts, but Victoria, why don't I let you come in first and then I'll, uh, I'll have a say. Yeah, I, I, I've been thinking what Wittgenstein would make of this rule following and whether Wittgenstein can actually help us out, and I don't think he, he would. On the issue of um, artificial intelligence uh, to aid players, you know, considering all the literature on technology as as extended mind, given that this is a mind, you know, chess is a mind game. If artificial intelligence is our extended mind, then how can it be <laughs> taken out of the equation? Um, and the, the other thought I had, um, it's about it's about the legal definition of cheating because it's all becoming very legalistic. And Jim Nichol, in his book on human rights, he says, oh, well, human rights are the rights of the lawyers. They're not the rights of the philosophers. And in a sense, he's right because human rights has, have been taken over by the lawyers and it, it's all become very legalistic. And the point here is that we kind of, it's all about the law as 
and not the norms. It, so it's about the law and not the spirit of the law. Um, and so in terms of cheating, you know, there's the question of where, you know, where specific laws being broken, which is one way of understanding cheating. And the other way of thinking about cheating is actually about the spirit of the game. But of course, no one seems to be interested in those questions unless, unless you're a philosopher. Over to you, Simon. Okay, so yeah, so you just mentioned spirit of the game. I think it's a really interesting distinction you just made, Michael, between uh, rules of the game or and the rules of the tournament. And then I was so I was thinking, you know, what would we, what would it be if we saw two chess players, for example, with earpieces linked to artificial intelligence? And let's imagine just for the moment it's artificial intelligence that's kind of external to them. I'll come back to extended mind in a moment, Torio. And we're watching these two human conduits for artificial intelligence chess programs playing out. And similarly, uh, in football, if we had not just one player, but 22 players who were AI football robots, right? Would anyone watch? I don't know if anyone would watch. Who cares? (laughs) Who cares that we've got these human conduits? I mean, it could be anyone. It doesn't need to be... Magnus Carlsen and the latest young pretender. It could be me and you. Who wants to see me and you with earpieces linked up to AI chess programs playing out of chess on a chess on a board? It seems, I mean, it, it's not sport anymore. It's kind of like some weird um, art project, <laughs> if anything. And, and so I suppose that the rules of the tournament are there to try to ensure that I mean, I don't know how we word it. Perhaps it's the spirit of the game, but there's still some interest in seeing humans do things. Now, I think it would be I mean, so. Th- that's the kind of extreme view. That's that's one view. And then the the one, the next thought I have is this. So, so I said extreme view. I meant what in kind of the extreme example. So there's there's a kind of nuanced example, which is imagine picking up on Victorio's thought about AI being extension, perhaps. So perhaps. It's not just an external AI chess program that's that kind of picked up off the shelf, but perhaps Magnus Carlsen in some way with his advisors has kind of helped to program a certain AI Magnus Carlsen program. And he's got an earpiece in this possible world. He's got an earpiece on that. And the same with, with the person he's playing. Then, then my extreme case isn't so sharp, right? It's kind of watching Magnus Carlsen having practiced a lot with AI and, and getting this AI linked to Magnus Carlsen's brain playing against the young pretender who's done something similar. And then that's not so sharp. But I still think there's something wrong there, right? Um, but uh, those are two thoughts off the top of my head initially. Michael, what do you make of what Victoria and I said? You ask, why would we want to watch this kind of thing? No one would want to watch it. And you're right. But why exactly is that? I mean, it, it depends on, I mean, it indicates that there's something that we want to get out of the game as players, but also as viewers that would not be there if it was supported by external devices and wouldn't be the players themselves who are playing. Um, and I was thinking, thinking about this case, I, I was reminded of a paper that Julian Savulescu wrote a while ago, I think in 2004, the paper was called Why We Should Allow uh, Performance Enhancing Drugs 
in sport. Uh, and you argued uh, very strongly that we should, in fact, allow performance-enhancing drugs in sport. And it was dealing with the common objections. And, and one objection uh, is, of course, it's cheating, which is easy to deal with that objection because it's only cheating if <laughs> if we declare this is not allowed, right? We could change then it wouldn't be cheating. And the second, perhaps more important objection is the one that you just introduced, um, namely the spirit of the game, the spirit of sport. So Savolescu addressed what is actually the spirit of the sport, the spirit of sport, and he identified the spirit of sport with the spirit of humanity. And the spirit of humanity is to overcome all obstacles to get faster and bigger and better any way we can, right? This is what makes us human. And in sh sport should reflect that. So become the best by all means possible. Now, why wouldn't we want to watch this? Because we think of sport as a competition between humans and be between natural humans. But I think what Savulescu is doing there is taking the idea of sport out of the competitive framework because it's not me against you anymore then or we against someone else, we British against the Americans and whoever, like we have in the Olympic Games, which is very much, we count the medals, right? The gold medals and the silver medals. So the perspective is slightly different. We don't look at the individual athletes, although they might themselves do that. But we as viewers look, how many medals do we as a country, as a nation get as, in, uh, as opposed to the others? But it's still a framework, a competitive framework me against you, we against the others. Whereas in Savulescu's vision of sport, there is no opponent. It's just us. It's the whole of humanity that is getting better and better and better, not in opposition to aliens or in opposition to machines, because it is all incorporated. So it's a I was going to say non-competitive framework, but it's not entirely true because there's a competition between the present self or the present state of humanity and perhaps a past state of humanity. So we want to become better than ourselves as we are now. So it's, it's future-directed, it's um, constant transcendence of what we are now, the present against the past, the future against the present. And I'm just wondering whether, I'm not endorsing this, I'm just emphasizing this is a different perspective. And I'm, I'm wondering whether we could use the same argument to advocate allowing chess players to use AI to improve their performance. Um, we might say no, because it would not be they who played and won the game. But why is it important? Who is doing the winning? Why is it not? Why could we not see how far we can get, how far, how fast we can 
solve a game, uh, win a game, or whatever. So what humans can do rather than what I can do versus what you can do. And I was also thinking, would, would the way we look at that case change if the player did not use an external device, but had some sort of cognitive enhancement that would give them the chess-playing abilities of the best chess-playing computers? Would it then be they who do the winning? Would it then be okay? So more in line with Savulescu's thinking, but as Vittoria pointed out with the extended mind uh, idea, it shouldn't really matter whether this enhancement, cognitive enhancement, is internal or external. It might be just the result that matters. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Michael. Vittoria, do you want to come back in? Very, very quickly. Um, this conversation about sports, it's impossible to divorce sport from meritocracy, which kind of goes back to what we were saying at, uh, before. Uh, that's why we watch sport. That's why we love sport, because there is it's almost an ideal a platform for meritocracy, which is kind of bizarre. On, on on your question about would people watch if sport if it was all sort of technologically, you know what I think they would because people watch Formula One, and I don't understand why they watch Formula One because it's actually all about the the machine and not the driver anymore. So <laughs> I don't watch Formula One for that reason, and I would watch everything else. But Simon, I have a question for you: um, cricket. Right, cheating, not cheating, spirit of the game. The end of the um, India-England cricket match last week. Um, the bowler, yeah, the, the the player that actually moved forward and the ball instead of bowling sort of took, took the uh, the stumps off. And it was a bit of a shock that people said that's not the, the the done thing. You don't do that in cricket, but actually it's within the rules. It is within the rules. I've so, seen it times. Was that was it wrong? Uh, so no, I don't think it was wrong. I don't think it was wrong. It's within the rules, and I've seen it lots of times. In fact, I thought it was quite naive to to think that you know you can't take the bales off. You know, you've got to have your your foot in the in the crease. I mean, I think there's an awful lot about you know nonsense spoken about cricket with, in terms of spirit of the game and things. I mean, there are the rules, and there's just conventions, just like in any other game, right? It's a bit like I mean, thinking about football um players don't have to but often when someone is severely injured then people will put the ball out and if they don't put the ball out you know so the the opposing team if they don't put the ball out the fans boo and and i think they're right to boo but the players don't have to put the ball out i mean it's just probably a bit silly because hey you know in five minutes time they could be getting severely injured and no one's going to put the ball out for them right to get on the pitch um, actually, I was going to come back to, to Formula One as well, because I was thinking exactly the same thing as you when Michael was speaking. I mean, like you, I don't, I don't watch Formula One. I've always hated it. It kind of leaves me cold. And of course, in my angrier moments, I go, why on earth would anyone watch Formula One? It is just technicians and driver. In my more reflective moments, I can see that you know there are better and worse drivers and they do bring something to it. But it's just got every year. The, the technical specifications increase and increase. I mean, there are limits. There are certain very important rules on the on the on the technical specification that are introduced every year to maintain the competition. Interestingly, this is you no know, because the, the technicians, the engineers, could go all out, but they're not allowed to. And uh, I mean, so people do watch Formula One. I find that inexplicable. <laughs> I, I mean, it strikes me as the most 
boring sport in the world. I mean, you know, wow, look, we're on, you know, lap 25 and someone's overtaken someone else. I mean, sorry for everyone who likes uh, racing cars out there. Uh, This might be the most controversial thing I say in this whole series. I hate Formula One. Um, So, so, but in in the case of, in the case of chess, I mean, actually, the, the, the other example I was thinking about was esports and football. So something's very been happening. I mean, over the last ten years, really increased over the last five years uh, at esports, and particularly um, people playing football. So FIFA, the latest version of FIFA, let's say, or whatever other game they're playing, and people kind of you know gamers playing against other gamers, either against one another or like halfway around the world. And this has become big business. I remember it was about three seasons ago, four seasons ago, and West Ham was the first Premier League team to sign a gamer. And people said, this is weird. But actually people said, no, this makes sense because loads of people watch it around the world. You don't actually have to be in situ and you can watch people do it. Now, I mean, that's kind of electronic, but there's still a huge amount of skill involved. And if, But if we imagined kind of a game being played out that someone had programmed without the human element, then I don't think, I don't know whether people would watch it. Well, perhaps people are bored. Perhaps people do watch all sorts of things. I mean, thinking about what you were saying, Michael, about that Salvalescu paper, I mean, I think you're right. There's a really interesting kind of framing that's going on there, which is definitely interesting and worth thinking about. I suppose, though, that what holds our interest is that humans are still up against certain limits. That's why Formula One, the rules of the of the game, not just the tournament, the game are that engineers can only do certain things every year on their specifications, on what you know, what angle the fins have to be on the cars or whatever, whatever they've got, what what the engines are like. To maintain those kind of limits that we're pushing against within the within the sport, if we just say, oh, there's no limits, then in a way, there's kind of what you what you're then interested in is what the engineers and the scientists and the AI programmers are doing, not what kind of more fallible embodied human beings are up against and that's kind of kind of something that i'm i i mean attracts me to sport right and that humans despite being fallible and not ordinarily superhuman every so often can just do the superhuman thing and that's kind of interesting to see whereas if i just think the human's just a conduit for the scientists and engineers doing superhuman things that's kind of interesting in a different way but it's not sport it's very, very interesting what you just said, Simon, because it suggests that what we really want to get out of it is not pushing the limits ever and ever further away, expanding the limits, but rather seeing how far we can go within limits. So it's not that the limit is what um, the limit is not understood as an obstacle. The limit is understood as a framework within which we can do the sport in the first place. And without those limits being agreed upon, or perhaps um, not necessarily agreed upon, might be natural limits, right? It might be human nature as we are now, as a limit that is there and see how far we can go within that framework of human nature rather than having it open-ended, um, with, in which case it would lose all interest for us to both participate in it and to take an interest in it as observers. 
Yeah, it's it's very much like art in that respect, right? So clearly, artists and individual art movement movements and art eras kind of push things, right? We've seen that as you know, the history of art is the is the history of of the human mind and the soul and so on, and there's different eras. But something you know, artists always say is they need constraints to work in. So if they've got kind of you know an individual artist sitting down or standing up in their studio or doing everything and they've got no limits, they're kind of bewildered. Whereas if they've got a restricted canvas or a restricted number of words or you know the limits of what an instrument can do, then that kind of gets their creative juices going because they're pushing against those those limits in the way that you just described, Mike. I actually like working within limits as a philosopher or as a writer. When you tell me you've got 1,500 words, write about that topic, I like this kind of thing, right? And usually I will produce something that's exactly 1,500 words long. I like the challenge within that framework, within those constraints, you can do it, right? I mean, it would be different if you had 15,000 words. It's a different thing that you produce, but it has its own attraction to work within those limits. I mean, if we didn't have constraint, we wouldn't have poetry. I mean, yeah, so absolutely. Um, but but I, I, I couldn't help thinking that this podcast has turned into a Georgia Maloney and Formula One bashing. <laughs> so I think I'm going to write a paper trying to see whether those who voted for Jordan Maloney also watch Formula One. Like, there could be something empirically um, <laughs> revealing. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Who knows? <laughs> well, listen, on that note, uh, gents, why don't we leave it there? And apologies to all Maloney and Formula One fans, particularly the the few or perhaps many who like both. Uh, but you know, I hope you found something to rail against as you're listening to us. Um, so we should thank Michael for all your thoughts and contributions. Thanks to you. Thank you for listening. Uh, and Vittorio, thanks for coming on uh, again. Uh, thank you, but, but I do not apologise for <laughs> my Maloney bashing. <laughs> uh, and thanks to you for listening. Hope you enjoyed it. And all being well, we'll be talking again soon with another episode of Philosophy Takes on the News. Mm-hmm.